You're listening to Mend, Life at the Seams. Hi, I'm Amy Day. And I'm Annie Freaky. Each season, we deep dive into a select community to hear their tales in hopes that we may shed some new light of understanding in that given corner of the world. In this season of Mend, we start digging in our own backyards. Beneath the stereotypes and sensationalized portrayals of criminals, greed, and environmental destruction, to the origins of Humboldt County's marijuana culture, the backs of the landers, the activists, the families, the farmers, and the medicine makers. In a landscape that is rapidly shifting, we go back to the beginning to see where we started, where we've come thus far, and hopefully shed some light on the path that's yet to come. So join us. Pull up a chair, pour a glass, and listen. Seed smuggling, lawsuits, and Humboldt's brand. Woods, a longtime Southern Humboldt resident, environmental activist, and one of the founding members of HumMap, Humboldt Mendocino Marijuana Advocacy Project, shares with us some of the stories on the evolution of Humboldt's marijuana culture. He laments the prevalence of greed in our overall culture and its rise in this subculture, stresses the need for balance, and offers a vision of how we can move forward sustainably on the cultivation path. As most aspects of this project, the learning curve can be quite large. We chose to meet at a park just outside of town, a park that I remember as being much quieter than it is today. Perhaps it is appropriate to the conversation that the park is overrun, in a sense, by the sound of civilization. You will hear trucks, cell phones, and a dog or two in the background, though never do they drown out the voices nor the great laugh of a man who walks in the woods. Well, thank you again, just for yeah, being here and for, for taking this time to talk to us. This has been, it's always that, the theory of like, let's sit down with people and then actually the people who actually want to come and share their stories is, is a whole other tool kit you have to unopen, <laughs> open up in and of itself, so. Well, I think it's fascinating that um, you two women are taking on a local project like this. Mm-hmm. We get a, a long train of media from what well, we just had NBC and CBS here. So, wow. um, in it, what capacity oh, did you trying to set up interviews about uh, the world of marijuana here uh-huh. and what's happening with it? A lot of them are fascinated by the conflict between uh, the old growers and the old style of growing and the uh, green rush. It's, it's a fascinating topic, that's what we <laughs> It's like comparing day and night. Yeah. But <laughs> well, and so that's how, where we've been starting is like our departure as far as, you know, we would love if you could just say, you know, for the record, so to speak, you know, just what your role is in this, in the marijuana culture here, um, um, to whatever degree you feel comfortable talking about that. Okay. Uh, when I... It'll get to be a little bit lengthy because that role has changed yeah. over time. Uh, when I first came up here, nobody grew marijuana. And what, uh, that was what year, you said? Well, I, I first came up here in 68. Okay. I didn't move here full-time until 73. But, uh, so, uh, 
So then they discovered Sensomia, and people initially grew just a small number of plants for their own use. And with that goal, they concentrated on producing a high quality product for themselves. In the nature of agriculture, some years they had very little, some years they had excess. When they had excess, they would send it to their friends in the city. Mm. And their friends would say, <laughs> more! Yeah. And that's actually where our industry started up here because people were not growing it to make money and but if they could get some money it would help them make their land payments yeah. so uh, so from that um, right away there were there was at least one person I knew who set up a big compound with a great big fence around it and what year would you say this was I would guess that that was about 76. Okay. About. Um, he was an Argentinian and would spend his winters in a tuxedo in Buenos Aires. Okay. At the casinos. There's our origins. <laughs> <laughs> so he really kind of was a, a model for what we now have everywhere yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly, of course, that's exaggeration, but uh, yeah, so, but everybody else ignored him, and he wasn't really part of the community anyhow, mm -hmm. um, and went about their way, but um, people were glad to make some money, but 35 plants is a huge, huge garden for those folks. Um, which is what the big industrial model was <laughs> back a, then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was a lot of plants. Yeah. <laughs> more like six <laughs> mm -hmm. is what most, most people would grow, or, or some would only grow two, you know. So um, it was never a greed thing. Back in the early days, nobody had any money. They would share vehicles. They would pass the chainsaw around from one person to another. Um, and one of the very first things that people with any extra money would do would be to buy buy, them, buy their own chainsaw. <laughs> really move up in the world. Arrives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, so the whole attitude was different. Um, and people still concentrated on growing a high quality product. And that is exactly where Humboldt got its worldwide reputation. I, I set up and emceed some of the rock concerts that were held in Golden Gate Park and Panhandle back in the 66, 67 period. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got, I had the chance to smoke marijuana from Morocco and Vietnam and places like that. Humboldt was the best. Yeah. And I think it was quickly recognized worldwide that Humboldt produced a special product. Mm. So, uh, so in fact, everybody wanted Humboldt, and uh, our um, supervisor, former supervisor Mark Lovelace, likes to tell a story that when he went to Malaysia, 
and he and he and they said where are you from they and he said uh, Humboldt County California they all went <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, and another story I like to tell was that we had the one that's now called Sharp Shop Stupid, I think it's called, <laughs> in uh, Redway, uh, was uh, was called Mauritius Market. And they had, like all supermarkets, their shopping bags had Mauritius Market on it. A guy from here took a bunch of those down to Texas, and he was able to sell them for 5 and $10 a piece. Wow, what? So that people bringing their Mexican in could put it in a Moorish bag and say, See, it's Humboldt! Oh my gosh! Wow. Oh my gosh. And that's the branding. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, a lot of fun stories from those days. Mm. But anyhow, so my role then got to be that, well, I guess it's a little complicated. <laughs> I was an environmentalist and still am, and in fact I incorporated EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center, mm -hmm. and I was the principal author of Proposition 130, the Forest Forever ballot and statewide ballot initiative. And uh, uh, I've traveled a lot around uh, the world working on environmental problems and, and uh, sued the timber industry here repeatedly and won all my suits. Uh, and uh, you won all your suits. Yes, all my suits. And uh, that—that's gets off into a very long story. <laughs> I won't go there quite. But on the other hand, uh, um, I was concerned about the environmental impacts of marijuana growing. Um, the first thing I saw was that people would put out people who were growing gorilla for money. This is not the local people. They would put out a little jar lid full of ethylene glycol, which is the antifreeze you put in the car. Okay. And that, wood rats love it. Yeah. They would eat it and die. And But so would people's puppy dogs and mm -hmm. many yeah. other creatures were killed secondarily from this effort to poison the wood rats. So that became a problem and that was the first of many. But I went around to all our local environmental groups and I said, gee, there, there's a new industry springing up here. There's problems. You need to get involved with this. And they all said no. Hmm. They said we might discover some of our contributors are growers. Mm. Actually, as it turned out, since I was right in the middle of the whole growing scene, I well knew that that's not who was contributing mm. to those environmental groups. Uh, and in fact, anybody who came in to grow for money wasn't even contributing to the road funds. Mm -hmm. So. It, it was a it was a selfish crew that came up here and was just focused on money. It wasn't part of the community that really lived here. Uh, so um, so I was living in a community um, that that everybody grew ten or twelve plants. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, the couple on the parcel next door to the one I was living on, they had three little kids. And when they got to be school age, they decided they didn't want to go to the local Southern Old Schools, so they moved so that they could go to the Bay Area schools up Arcata or I've got I think it was Arcata where they were. Uh, and they sold their land. It was a pretty big piece of land as it turned out. And the people who bought it um, immediately put in huge groves, a bunch of generator groves. And this, so I just wanted to mark it in time. So this would be what what year now that we're looking at? Ooh, I have, the doc I have all the court documents right 35. here. <laughs> oh, man. I can open them up. Because we're not talking 35 plants at this point. We're talking something. No, huge. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. it's indoor too. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, so yeah, uh, um, it, it's kind of a, a long story, but I'll tell some of the highlights anyhow. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the sheriff conducted a raid on a nearby parcel and um, didn't have time to take all the evidence. So they left the generator there overnight with an evidence tag on it, and by golly, the next morning it was gone. Mm. So that made the sheriff very angry. Mm. Uh, and he had ways of finding out what had happened to that generator. Um, and um, he found out what happened. It was the people who had put in this grow on my friend's land. So they conducted a raid there and they seized 13 generators, wow. 12 of which were stolen. Wow. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> um, the couple that had sold the land, here they were, they had hardly received any money on it, and yet there was a great big diesel spill on the land. And they were afraid they were going to lose their shirts uh -huh. because they'd have to pay for the cleanup and all the rest. So I got a call the next day after the raid from the owner saying, would you, and he also called another friend of mine, another neighbor there, would you, you and Fred go look at this spill and tell me what you see? So I, I and Fred went in there. We each took cameras. I've got some of the shots here on this computer. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was obvious to us that the police had caused the spill. Wow. Yeah. Uh. The sheriff had. So. Uh, on purpose? Or? Yeah. Uh, so, being an environmentalist, I called the Division of Environmental Health. I called Fish and Game. I called the Regional Water Quality Control Board. They, these, some of these agencies sent representatives out, and I took them on the site and showed them. And they all agreed it was obvious the sheriff caused the spill. And they all took photographs. And uh, the Division of Environmental Health person they wouldn't tell me anything about it, but they sat down in the back room with the sheriff because they knew he had been doing these kind of spills. And this is the first time they got the real hard evidence on him. Mm. 
So they they thrashed it out and made a deal whereby he not only would not cause spills anymore, but that uh, whenever he does find a spill, he will call in the proper authorities like environmental health. What would be the reason for doing? I mean, it, it's just kind of a, a, a simplistic question, but as for, from a law enforcement point of view, what would be the point of the, perpetrating that kind of thing? The point of perpetrating it was he knew that the that there were owners behind the operation that he would not be able to get to mm. and charge them with anything. Okay. So this was their way of saying. I guess you could say punishing uh-huh. the people behind the land. Okay. They, the, the sheriff then agreed that he would no, no longer cause spills, and he hasn't, and I'm pleased. That's why I don't name names here, mm-hmm. because they actually okay. have done a pretty good job. But anyhow, we, we filed depositions saying this is what we saw, and you know, we're all prepared to go to court, but I think they, they were able to negotiate so that even though the, they caught two workers there, just small people in terms of mm-hmm. responsibility, that is. Uh, and they, were, they, they charged them with the spill, which of course was wrong. So we got all that dropped. Okay. And uh, it, it was all negotiated. Uh, and the the two guys they caught got off very lightly, so yeah. it was almost a win-win situation, almost except for the spill and a few other details. Right. But <laughs> so, how did you? Uh, I mean, have you taught yourself the logistics of suing timber companies and taking, or did you have any kind of education before this? It seems like there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of. Oh boy, yes, there is. Yeah, it's certainly fair to say I taught myself. Um, And I've been involved in environmental work for decades. I was involved when I lived in New York City in in, in environmental stuff and and again in San Francisco. I had a role in the uh, Golden, getting the Golden Gate National Recreation area established. but mostly I came up here. The thing about forest practices, it's never been a subject that interests me, but in order to make for better logging practices here, you have to do statewide. So, you know, it got to be a statewide issue, <laughs> uh, complete with all the complexities. We spent eight and a half million dollars trying to get Proposition 130 passed. But, uh, and it passed? No, it didn't. Oh. <laughs> we got 47.5% of the vote, which was the by far the most that any environmental initiative in the United States got that year, but it was one of those years when nobody wanted to vote for the environment. This is, this is a little off, but this is one thing that we just, and maybe you guys talked about this a little, but I'm sure before I got here, <laughs> but one thing that we we have been asking people is just a little bit of their, their kind of their own personal connection and origin, and so you, you talk about, you know, your, um, your role as an environmentalist and an activist, and I just wonder if that, if you could just tell us a little bit about what it was about this area in particular that called you to it, like what, 
how how did you end up here? What was it about this place that really spoke to you and you would what made you want to call this place home? I would say the reasons are purely and strictly spiritual. Hmm. I think it's a very special area. And where were you coming from before you were here? I dealt with living in the Bay Area, okay. San Francisco. I wanted to ask you if you would feel comfortable. Like I, I'm really, I'm struck by um, what you say about kind of your primary uh, um, reason for being yeah, up here. Yeah, yeah, the, the draw for you. And I feel like that's something that we've had a lot of people speak to. Is it wasn't necessarily. Yeah, it was this. It was a deeper connection they felt. It wasn't, you know, for some job. It wasn't for some larger opportunity. It was really because they felt some calling, stirring. Um, there's a couple places I want to take with that, but I'm I'm curious just how how that connection has been affected as you've watched this culture become so radically shifted over time. Well, it's kind of two questions at once. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty different ones, too. <laughs> so if we can start with the first, maybe expand on your, um, if you are comfortable with it. Okay, yeah. Um, well, you're asking me personal questions. I'll give you answers for what they're worth. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I had a a very vivid dream one night in which I saw Shiva meditating on a mountainside. And I didn't know what to make of it, it was just a dream. Uh, No reason why I would have a dream like that. Six, about six months later, I was hiking and suddenly recognized there was the spot I had seen in my dream, even Mm. though I'd never been there before. So uh, that uh, caught my attention, let's put it that way. (laughs) And uh, so I spent uh, time meditating in that remote location. And, uh, but actually that goes beyond the fact that I had already studied for a number of years with Suzuki Roshi down in San Francisco. Mm. So uh, I was already well involved in meditative practices. But uh, yeah, so that's the short and the short end of the story, I guess, as far as you know, I guess one of the first things I did, one of the early things I did was work on trying to protect that part of our area, which is now much better protected. Um, so that was here in Humboldt? Yeah. That Monday. But uh, also, um, since that time, I have taken a very strong stand publicly and and in all ways, against greed. I, I feel it's the sickness of our culture. 
everybody has forgotten how to be reverent and why they should be reverent. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm loath to try to preach any religion. Uh, people are very sensitive about that, rightfully so. Uh, but I do feel that greed is out of control in our culture, very much so. And if that's one thing we see here in the marijuana movement, and there's, that's actually a big difference from what people did when they first grew marijuana. It wasn't for greed. And in fact, down in Haight-Ashbury, when everybody would sit around on a couch, passing a joint around, they'd talk about stopping the war, they'd talk about liberation of, for women, and they talk about ending our culture of greed. And that's the one we haven't done so much work on yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just getting worse. And it's really kind of ironic that marijuana has getting, gotten so tied up with greed. It's not a surprise. And in fact, as I said, I was involved in Haight-Ashbury, and what I saw there was it, it, the, it fell to pieces with methamphetamine. Uh, I was real centrally involved, and I saw a lot of that come down. I know what, what happened to a lot of that. So, yeah, methamphetamine and other heavy drugs, heroin, stuff. Mm -hmm. Kind of ruined the Haight-Ashbury. <laughs> but, uh, so, does marijuana have value? Um, I don't, you know, I don't think it's some wonderful savior for humanity. Mm -hmm. um, it has more value than a lot of people have were willing to recognize. It's now starting to come out more and more that it does have great value, medically speaking and whatnot, recreationally, etc. So yeah, it's a valuable product, but it's not. It doesn't justify the behavior we've seen, the disrespect for the environment, the disrespect for people. There's a lot to the marijuana movement today that is not healthy. So. so I'm curious, I feel like one, one thing that has come up for us in these conversations is this almost, you know, we've heard the term voluntary simplicity a lot. Um, you know, there's almost this kind of... Voluntary um, means you're giving in to your heart. So it's not exactly voluntary, it's just kind of an act of self-realization mm -hmm. in a sense. So people have a natural desire to be simple in their lives. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a slightly different emphasis than you say. Well, I guess, so I, one thing that comes up, I, and just even in my own life on a regular basis, is uh -huh. this conversation of because we are in a culture, you know, even as much as we are up here in this beautiful, you know, we're surrounded by, we still have access to clean water and air and, you know, and, and nature in abundance still. It may shift, <laughs> is shifting, you know, rapidly. Has shifted. Yeah, has shifted, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, but there's, I think we're still, you know, we all have this subterranean current in our lives of this consumer culture, kind of, there's always that feeling of like, more, yes. more, right? Yep. Yep. And so it's... That's all that materialism has to offer is more, more, more. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to offer the really spiritual values that everybody craves. 
I just, I wonder if there's a balance, I guess, is my thought. That's <laughs> the right word. <laughs> because balance. it seems like there's, there's we've sure. talked to some people who have almost more, the, an almost monastic type way of, yep. like, you know, they're like, I mm-hmm. live simply, I, you know, I mm-hmm. have almost, I have no indoor plumbing, I have no, and, there, and there's this almost, um, you know, that's a, a badge of courage, you know, like I've chosen to live completely outside the culture, you know, and I don't think most people are going to sign up for that kind of a lifestyle. Well, you'll be surprised who will <laughs> surprise, turn up, sign up for it one, one day or another. But that's another question. You're right. A lot of people won't. And rightfully so. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not being judgmental against living life in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have a path that we follow. And it's, it's wrong to say, your path has to be this way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People have to discover their own paths. And it's always got surprises built into it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what do you see as far as the, the advantages and disadvantages of now that we're, we're legal, at least in the, the state realm? I mean, do you think that regulation is going to have good effects will will we end up seeing some better practices or well it's going to be a mix for sure mm-hmm. um, not all good not all bad uh, I feel that we really want to aim the surfboard so that it goes as far up onto the beach as we can get it mm. um, I think when we right now a lot of people are saying one thing but if you but if it's not the best idea even though your voice is just one little voice saying no 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 this is better that plants an important seed I think so um, we encountered this hum map thrashed out a vision statement of what environmentally sound growing would look like. Humboldt Mendocino Marijuana Advocacy Project. Okay. And it's had some of our community's finest members in it who have put together that vision statement. Uh, And uh, I think very highly of it. So anyhow, yeah. um, So can you give us a kind of overview of what HUMAP what, what yeah, is doing. What's the and vision and what the... In well, it, the it went through a long process of having almost weekly or, or bi-weekly meetings which were well attended and they were practically fistfights. Yeah. Oh, you have to allow people to grow under lights. You have to allow people to use herbicides. You have to allow people to do this or that or the other thing. And it was just knock down, drag out fights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, it's uh, like a homebound quiet. politics. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a process. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's again partly why the vision statement we finally came up with, I feel so good about. Um, because it really was a thrashing down mm-hmm. of why and why not? Where's the limit? What? What's the goal, etc. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so in your the so Humap, their purpose is to be um, speakers in the community when it comes to. Humap is on the verge of extinction because mm-hmm. of an obvious reason. 
and that it was put together by people from my generation. <laughs> They're not the kids. They're not picking up the ball and running with it. They got their own ball to play with. <laughs> Which is fine, but I don't know how it all works out. We've had a lot of inquiry uh, of people in other states wanting to be members or involved with UMAP. And uh, UMAP members don't want to take it on because it's just a lot of work for what? You know, uh, most, um, a lot of the old people are just, uh, don't have the energy to carry forward all this kind of stuff. So I don't know what the future for HUMAP is or, or even what its role will be. We sued the county, uh, when was it? It's been about a year ago, maybe. I've forgotten how long. Um, and we didn't have enough money to carry out the suit properly. So... Mm. Uh, we reached a settlement on that, but um, it was not a settlement that I liked. So if there are young people listening to this that are local and would like to get involved, well, yeah, I think, send them your way? Sure, well, I think HUMMAP would love to have... We do have some, for example, um, you know her? She has, she was raised here locally, her mother's an old-time woman here. Got the name of the little community there. One of those ones whose names flash by you on the... What a what, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so she has a small farm that... And she grows marijuana on it, and um, she's been very upfront. She's been the show-and-tell lady. She's taken legislators there. She's taken the supervisors, the media all that stuff. Uh, she's been an out front spokesperson and I got her started in that. That was long enough ago she probably doesn't even remember. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there are a few young people. There's some out in uh, Petroli area, for example. Mm -hmm. And here and there. Uh, we we had a couple hundred members at one point. But, oh wow, that's a lot. Yeah, but it, it kind of I would say it's much less of that now, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, HUMMAP is an interesting group. I'll tell you about a couple of our members, just to mention them, because I'm always tickled and they never like me mentioning them. <laughs> One is the guy who's passed away now, so I don't think he'll mind too much, uh, <clears throat> who first stabilized CBD strain in marijuana. That started right here and it was not for money. It was not done for money. Uh, and CBD of course is the ingredient that, and at that time it was strongly suspected it would, uh, help um, uh, children with uh, seizures, epilepsy and whatnot. And of course now it's a very big thing. It's what's motivated a number of state legislatures to legalize uh, CBD uh, marijuana, but that started right here in Humboldt with one of our members. Nice. Another one was a gentleman. He, uh, back in the 70s, is that right? Yeah. Um, 
his friend came to him and said, well, you know, we can't get marijuana to, they're all growing Mexican, and they can't get marijuana to mature in time to harvest it and use it in a good way either would rain or a frost or whatever would come before the Mexican was ripe. Mm -hmm. So my friend, combat member, they sat down and they looked at a map of the world to where marijuana was grown and they looked for an area that was the same latitude as we have here, 40 degrees north latitude. And they then flew to Kabul and negotiated to buy five pounds, five kilos of seed uh, from North Waziristan, which is, you probably don't know anything about the borders no. there, but North Waziristan is, a, is part of um, Pakistan that bulges out into Afghanistan so that it's a, it might as well be part of Afghanistan as Pakistan so who can say which country it belongs to but anyhow so and it's the it's the area since then that has been rained upon by predator missiles from the United States but anyhow when they went there there was no war and they got all this seed and they smuggled it back to this country and distributed it widely. Again, not a profit-oriented. It was just designed to have high-quality marijuana that, that would mature in our climate. Mm -hmm. And um, that was uh, in the late 70s. And uh, now most, a great deal of the genetics of North American and European marijuana traces to that act. And that's again, a HUMMAP member did that. I'm, okay. I'm curious what your, if you had your druthers and you could just puppet master the shit out of this next decade or so of mm -hmm. growth, what would your vision for Humboldt County and for the marijuana industry be? If well, I'd ask first for a responsible board of supervisors, which we do not have right now. And what would that look like as far as...? It would look like people who aren't thinking in terms of greed, 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 greed. Right. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> who aren't thinking in terms of greed and, uh, and who have the selflessness to say, here's how we want our county to be 10, 20 years from now. Well, I can tell you that the people who think, oh, I'm going to grow a thousand acres of marijuana here in Humboldt, they're clueless. Yeah. They're on two scores. First of all, they can't compete with what's going to be grown in Central Valley or Kansas or wherever. And second of all, that's not the way you get a quality product. Mm -hmm. our, our market finally is going to be a niche market um, where people buy the lifestyle for one thing they not only buy the high quality product that was carefully hand processed they're going to buy the fact that they know that it was organic grown in the sun and by people who 
put love into it. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is where our industry future lies, and I'm, and I'm pleased. Uh, I have always felt, as I said earlier, I've tried marijuana from lots of places. Uh, I feel that Humboldt County will, legal or illegal, always grow marijuana. This is going to be a marijuana center. In addition to which, you know, you have a lot of places with specialty crops. Racehorses in Kentucky, for example. There's no specialties and there's racehorses in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. But you've got all the trainers, all the equipment, all the tracks. You've got all this stuff down there concentrated. How many soil producers and outlets do we have? Where do all the trimmers come to? We have similar infrastructure here. So I think that will help support the fact that we will be the industry center. And in fact, that's the problem. Because marijuana can be grown anywhere. Mm -hmm. Why are they flocking to Humboldt? It's because of that reputation Mm -hmm. that they are trying to cash in on by producing junk marijuana, relatively junk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, they're just they're just trying to kill the goose that laid the golden eggs, so to speak. But the, there will be people who grow that good quality marijuana always. Do you imagine we'll have to tip to the pretty far end of that that crap marijuana spectrum? <laughs> in order to, I mean, because you're hearing, like, the land grab that you're hearing about right now is, I mean, you're hearing property that sold for, you know, Four hundred thousand dollars a few years ago is now worth two million, three million. Like yeah. people, and I don't know who these people are that are coming in with two to three million dollars, but they're coming up from the city. And I mean, that's what you're hearing, and so yeah. you know, I mean, like, because you you start doing the math, and you know, you hear about how the numbers are going down every day, practically, yeah. as far as what you can get <laughs> yeah. for a pound. And yeah. I mean, you start like how much will you have to produce just to make back your two million dollar land investment? You yeah. know. So I'm just wondering how, in your opinion, you know, how far into that huge industrial scale are we going to have to tip before it's ready to swing back into Well, I think it would be very helpful if we had a good board of supervisors because a lot of that is precedent being set. That's the wrong precedent Mm -hmm. in many cases and will be hard to undo once it's done. Mm. Whereas if it were done wisely to begin with, we could look to a better future. So, um, that's, I think that's an interesting thing too, just cause I wonder how, how you do begin to shift people out of that, that dollar mentality, because it seems like, you know, once that, you know, like you say, that greed is, is the overruling, um, motivation, how do you detach from that? How do you get into that bigger picture thinking of like, you know, healthy land, healthy families, healthy communities, um, once you've made, you know, you've been worshiping at the feet of the almighty dollar for so long? Um, Well, first of all, it's important to talk about these things. Mm. Some people don't need a lot more prompting than that. I did a series of about 10, maybe 12, radio shows on KMUD, probably still archived there, I don't know. where we had the DA, the sheriff, we had growers, we had people from Daisy's Supply, we had, you know, the whole spectrum of people involved with the industry. Um, we come, we came, they came and we discussed spills, 
for example. Uh, and what the sheriff said later was that after, after our series of shows, he was finding a lot more diesel setups that had double containment, which is That's one great. of the major preventatives that we had talked up. And the people at the local fuel selling place up there, I've forgotten their name now, they said that they were now selling a, a lot more fuel spill cleanup kits. So it's again another thing we had talked up on the radio. So I think that I think that shows that we were effective in in and that the, the that there are a certain number of people who, who will listen. I think that some people get a message one way or another. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they have the intelligence and the civility to get it just having their neighbor, you know, peer to peer conversations do a heck of a lot of good. You know, you really sh you really shouldn't be pumping out of the creek this time of year, or whatever you say to your neighbor. Uh, that helps a lot. That goes a long way. That's a big tool in helping ensure that we have a good future here. One-to-one. -one. So there's a, there's a lot of ways to get at this. And as far as the vision goes, it's not in my hands. I only try to do what I can, but no telling whether it's going to be effective or not. There's a bunch of species that we have, bird species, for example, who um, cannot survive with edge. They have to have large, unbroken tracts. Uh, even uh, even you see that with the marbled murrelet. Um, they are vulnerable to predation by jays. Jays are edge birds. Humans have created an enormous amount of edge now, cutting roads through every solid block of forest. And the edge invites the jays in. The, the jays are edge species. The jay populations from when whites first came here and surveyed the birds back in the early 1800s to now, their populations have exploded because there's enormously more ed edge. And jays just, uh, one of their principal foods is the eggs and young of other birds. So you're right away, when you put a clearing here, grow site, clearing here, grow site, clearing here, grow site, you're just increasing hugely the amount of edge that species that are sensitive to the presence of edge cannot tolerate. There's just a lot of many, many reasons why you have to go with this carefully. And it's not what's happening. It's, it's not what's happening. And uh, we don't have the level of education and sophistication uh, in our leaders to appreciate that. I'm trying to formulate this question in my mind just about how, well, I just, there's something about the nature of industry, right? Because, I mean, we can look at even, like, you know, we all have Apple products that we're either typing on or calling on, and we know, we know as conscious consumers 
that you know Apple doesn't have the best practices as far as you know extracting things from the earth or <laughs> how they put together their products and yet we've allowed that into our lives we've yes. spent good money <laughs> for yeah. it into and and I'm sure we could name any number of things that we wear or use even the cars yes. that we drive yeah. and yet we've kind of like it's just how things are and so we we make certain allowances and I wonder why there's almost this feeling like marijuana is held to this higher standard you know like we have to be different somehow than everyone else even though every other industry is doing it's true we do have to (laughs) we have to hold to a higher standard because we have to turn things around you use the right word balance we're way out of balance Mm. Mm -hmm. so almost we're at this tipping point it sounds like where marijuana has been assimilated into the industrial model and as people that have been you know in this watching it change we have this opportunity to push back and say f you basically <laughs> like we're not going to be subsumed by the industrial model or um, well i don't think first of all i don't think it's the future of our county and mm-hmm. furthermore since it's not the future of our county economically speaking i think we have the option then from that to become a good model mm-hmm. From the vision statement of the Humboldt Mendocino Marijuana Advocacy Project. We see a continuing bright future for the marijuana industry of Humboldt County. We are the origins of much of the marijuana awareness, use, and cultivation in the Western world. This vision was born of a lifestyle devoted to self-realization and environmental and social respect and reverence. This lifeway is an essential to the preservation of the earth and the reverence for the healing, sacramental, and caring social roles that marijuana gives us. Our vision is to honor and extol those roles. To this end, we honor the righteous cultivation and sharing of this sacred herb. Our members and supporters accept the need for limits to the quantity they grow and the conditions by which they grow and in the marketing and quality control of their products. We represent organic, small-scale, outdoor growers. We do not grow with artificial light or with chemical fertilizers or pesticides. Humboldt Herbal Cannabis is world-famous, we are proud to say, but this has not come without problems. There are many who do not sanctify the herb or partake of its glory, but they grow money. Our revolution was accomplished in part with money for which we will all find some necessary and reasonable value. But when weed becomes primarily a money crop, it loses its sacred value. Its healing properties are compromised and the social world it propagates is ruled by greed. It is against what the earth is crying for. As always, thank you for listening. Amy and I are really enjoying these conversations, and we hope that you all are too. If so, please leave us a review on iTunes by searching MEND, tapping on Reviews, then tap Write a Review to leave a comment and click some stars. It will only take a moment and will help this podcast get noticed. Even though these stories are local to Humboldt, the visions, the intentions, the lessons are relevant throughout the world. So please spread the word tell your friends check out our website at mendpodcast.com 
and we hope you look forward to more stories from life at the scenes.